The Old Testament lesson today comes from Esther, chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 22. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me, that is my petition, and the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace, but no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has presumed to do this? Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same month, year by year, as the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. Please join me in reading Psalm 124. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when our enemies attacked us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The New Testament lesson comes from the book of James, chapter 5. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. 
excuse me. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Thank you, Kay. Our gospel lesson is from the gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, And this is, uh, Jesus is with his disciples in a house in Capernaum. So hear now for how God is speaking to you through these words of the Gospel of Mark. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Here ends the reading. Thanks be to God. There was a child who was watching a children's show on TV one morning, and and apart from the child's brain being assaulted by all the fast edits and hyperkinetic pacing and visual overstimulation, uh, the show provided a very valuable service. Every now and again, it would pause. So that's the corporate sponsors could offer uh, the child a a chance to peer more intently at the screen and point and exclaim, I want that. I want that. And I really, really need and want that. And the child's mother, uh, overhearing all these exclamations, uh, comes into the room and walks over to the TV and turns it off. And says, that's quite enough of that. And the child is, is angry and nonplussed and upset and confused and is all a whole bunch of emotions over the suddenness of this act. And finally, the child uh, is coherent enough to find a voice to offer protest to the mother. And the child said, but how will I know what I want? How will I know what I want? That's a big question. That's a very big question. And leads one to wonder, how did we survive before advertising took over our physical and visual 
sonic and time space. How did we survive? How will I know what I want? Well, there's a lot of people who are very happy to answer that question for us. But imagine if we didn't let others make that decision for us. How will I know what I want? This is where Jesus is with his disciples in the story that we read and in much of the chapter, actually much of this chapter of of Mark. They're stuck in this thought process of, of want and of letting others choose for them. And it's a wanting that's socially conditioned. And that's the, the kind of wanting that Jesus is fighting against and speaking out against and offering an alternative way. And he and his disciples, I mentioned they're in a house in Capernaum at this point, probably Peter's house when they were in Capernaum way back in chapter 1. Uh, it was at P- they were at Peter's house. Um, so I would assume that they're back uh, at Peter's house here. And they had come back after witnessing Jesus' transfiguration. At the beginning of this chapter, they went up to the mountain for the transfiguration and then uh, walked back to Capernaum uh, to come home. And on the way, Jesus cast a spirit out of a, uh, a boy. And then there's also this period where the, uh, where the disciples on this walk are arguing. They have an argument. And clearly Jesus didn't uh, put himself into this argument. He let it go on. And when they got to the house... Once they were home, then Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about? I think Jesus knew. And the disciples don't answer anything. But we know, because the text says, and because Jesus, I'm pretty sure, knew that they were arguing over which one of them was the greatest. They've been with Jesus for a while already. You'd think they know. That's not the question to ask. Or argue over, but they were arguing over who was the greatest. And that's a socially conditioned question of want. And the text doesn't say by uh, what parameters they're making their arguments about who is greatest, but I, I trust and I know that you are all uh, creative and wise people and can probably think of many, many ways that they were debating with one another about how to determine who is the greatest. Uh, but of course, worrying or caring about who is greatest or in striving to be recognized as the greatest is a waste of life energy. It's an argument that goes nowhere. How will I know what I want? Certainly the advertisers, the powers that be, the culture, probably even the religious leaders have been more than happy to say to us, I'll tell you what you want. And often part of that is that at least one thing you ought to want is to be great and to be recognized for your greatness. One thing you ought to want is to be better than everyone else. Because life is a competition, right? It's all about who wins and who loses. 
You may think, but pastor, are you telling me that after all of my years of service to the church, the sacrificial giving, the denial of pleasures, the building that is named after me in my humility, are you telling me that after I've done all of that, that this guy here who has done so little is as great in the kingdom of God as me? And I say, yes, I am saying that. Because it's not about greatness. It's not about greatness. So then all that stuff that I did was just a waste? I'd say, well, if you did all of that, not from a want to follow Jesus, but from a want for recognition or striving to be great or to be known, then yes, it was all a waste. It was an utter and complete waste of your time because it was completely unnecessary. It was all good stuff, but done for the wrong reason. There are many ways to argue over who is the greatest, but that argument has no place in the community of Jesus. It has no place in the church. It has no place in Jesus' fellowship. Jesus is, in a sense, with his disciples here, he's coming into the room and turning off their TV and saying, that's quite enough of that. He was showing a new way that went beyond want that's caused by ego or social conditioning or desire. And so he knows what the disciples have been arguing about. And he takes a child. And I mentioned they're in a house. And I'm just going to take a little aside here to chide the, the writer of Mark. Because Mark set up that Jesus is in a house with his disciples and somehow Jesus has a child there to bring out as an example. And I want to know, where did that child come from? Mark doesn't mention it. Was this, uh, if it was Peter's house, maybe it was Peter's kid. Why not say, Jesus took Peter's child? Anyway, different argument. It's part of that frustration sometimes with the writers of of the Bible. But Jesus takes this small child and puts it among them and says, whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. And then goes on to say, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And maybe Jesus took a small child to represent someone who hasn't been yet polluted with all of the false and, and unhealthy wants that we so often surround ourselves with. And after that, uh, Jesus says that, then we get into the passage that we read. John then speaks up. He doesn't respond to what Jesus said at all. Uh, Now John speaks up and tells Jesus that they tried to stop someone from casting out demons uh, because, uh, as they said, they're not following us. Again, they they want a special status. Jesus has already stopped them from arguing amongst themselves about who is greatest. But now they're thinking, all right, within the group we can't have a greatest, but surely amongst all of the groups that exist in the world, there ought to be a greatest, and certainly that ought then to be us, right? That should be us. 
What is the greatest group in the world? It's us. And Jesus says, no, that's quite enough of that. He says, whoever is not against us is for us. In a sense, saying that my community, Jesus' community, my community is everyone. Not just you who have been following me, not just those who have heard me, everyone. Unless they willingly remove themselves from it, my community is everyone. And everyone is equal, there is no greater, there is no lesser. And then Jesus brings up the child again as he turns his rhetoric into this very dramatic uh, hyperbolic uh, levels of hyperbole that he offers in this passage where he says, if any of you cause a little one to stumble, that is to teach them uh, false things, false wants of materialism uh, or pride, desire, nationalism, separation, tribalism, uh, fear of the other, whatever it is, if you teach, uh, cause a little one to stumble, it would be better for you to die mafia style with cement around your feet and tossed into the water. In fact, Jesus goes on to drive the point home. He says it's better to cut off your hand and cut off your foot and pluck out your eye than to cause someone to stumble or to stumble yourself and go to hell. That's a pretty strong point. This is not the tender, easy Jesus And I'm quite positive that Jesus is not being literal here about cutting off body parts. I think Jesus uh, was wise enough and smart enough to know that it's not our hands or our feet or our eyes that cause us to stumble. It's our hearts and our mind. It's misplaced wants, misplaced desires. It's only what we do and where we go and, and, and where we cast our vision that can make us stumble. And Jesus is being very dramatic here because his disciples are being dunces. They're not getting it. And so he he just cranks up the rhetoric. And he has this mention of hell, which can sound really scary. And sadly, over the centuries, uh, there's been within Christianity uh, this kind of this idea of, of a hell as some kind of non-earthly separate place of eternal torment and a guy with a pitchfork and lakes of fire and, uh, and, and eternal suffering reserved for those who are bad. But that question, who is bad, is in many ways no different than the question, which one of us is greatest? And I have never heard anyone And maybe you have, but I have never heard anyone amongst those who believe in a literal fiery hell. I've never heard anyone who preaches that. I've never heard them argue for them to be included in the group of people who are going there. It's always reserved for someone else. It's always them and never us. But hell is not this this other place of eternal damnation or or torment. In the Greek, uh, the word here is Gehenna, which is the Greek name for a place that in Hebrew was called Ben-Hinnom. It's a little area outside of Jerusalem. And, And it's a place that the prophet Jeremiah mentions 
in chapter 7 of his book is part of his indictment against the people of Judah, this many hundreds of years before Jesus' time. Uh, Jeremiah mentions it to condemn the Hebrew people because at that time they were sacrificing their sons and daughters. They were burning or offering them as burnt sacrifices in, the, in this valley of Ben-Hinnom, Gehenna, or hell. And it's a practice which God heartily condemns and never asks for. So it's a place of child sacrifice. And so if you're going to teach wrong things to children, and think of children really as being anyone, I think, if we're going to uh, cause others to stumble, you are basically sacrificing that person in the fire pits of Gehenna. And so, in a, in a way, Jesus is saying here, if it's going to take a lesser form of violence to stop you from doing that, uh, then so be it. But the best way, Jesus says, is his way. It's a way that involves no violence at all. It's the way of love, grace, mercy. It's a way that involves no violence except for the violence that he was willing to endure for us. The violence he was willing to accept on our behalf a want that was born of Jesus' love, of wanting only what is best for neighbor, born out of a denial of one's desire for life. Even our desire for life is to be sent to the back seat if living out that desire causes harm to a neighbor or causes another to suffer or to stumble. And that's an awfully high ethic. Uh, And if you're sane, that will sound awfully insane. That is a high ethic. But it's not impossible. And ultimately, it's easier and even more freeing than living the other way. And does it sound impossible? Not sure if you can live quite that way of denying your own life for the benefit of others. Not sure if he can do that. Well, the good news is that we have been doing that. You have been doing that. You already are doing it. Every water bottle uh, that we give away to the people on the street, every name that we learn, every set of eyes that we look into and say, you are my brother or sister, Every meal that's served, every quilt we make, every crop walk we walk, every dollar we donate to St. Francis or donate to the UCC for disaster relief, every time you recycle or choose to buy an ethically produced item, it's all living that way. All, All of those actions say to the noise in the world, that is quite enough of that. What I want is what Jesus wants, which is good for my neighbor. Good, goodness for my neighbor. And by living for the good of my neighbor, we are at peace with one another. How will I know what I want? We will know when we understand 
the needs of our neighbors.